0: The following sermon was delivered by Pastor Frank Griffith in the Sunday morning service at Calvary Community Church in Brentwood, California. You'll find more information at calvarytruth.org. You can see the title of the sermon was first, The Myth of Pain-Free Transformation. Transformation is what God is doing in the life of every believer, whether you like it or not. God is transforming us. He has promised this. Then I decided to call it the ecstasy and agony of transformation because it, this text that we're looking at in Second Corinthians chapter 12 is about Paul's experience of ecstasy that is being caught up into the third heaven and actually experiencing the presence of God. And he saw things he can't even tell us about. But then immediately after that, it talks about the thorn in the flesh that the Lord gave him so that he wouldn't become proud because of this experience. So in this process of conforming us into the image of Christ, it's clear that that God not only brings great blessing, but he also brings trials and troubles, and sometimes that's hard for us. We don't like that too much, but this is what Romans 8.29 says. Now, you all know Romans 8.28. That's the passage that says, uh, God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose, and then he immediately says, because... That's what that little four means. Because those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. I know that's a scary word for a lot of people because they don't understand what it means. This is what it means. It means that God has laid out the route that he's going to use in bringing you into conformity with the image of Christ. He's determined how you're going to get there. It'd be like if we were decided to travel to New York, to Ithaca, New York, and so we got a map and we mapped out our route we're going to follow this route to get there. Maybe we needed to go through Oklahoma City to visit relatives or something. So we go there and then we go back up and so forth. And then he tells us what that route includes. That's what predestination means. It means God has planned the route by which you're going to be conformed into the image of Christ. And then he goes on to say, Uh, predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. In other words, God wants to transform Christians into the likeness of Jesus so that the entire family has the same character so that we reflect who Jesus really is in our daily life. The fact is, the, the Bible teaches that there are certain Effects of receiving Christ that you'll be able to see in any person who truly receives Jesus Christ by faith. We are all aware that there are a lot of people who say they're Christians and we see no evidence of it. And here's the evidence that John gives in his little epistle of 1 John. He says, The evidence is that you've been born again is that you have faith, that is, you trust God's testimony about His Son. So you have faith. You believe Christ. You trust Christ. You believe God's testimony about Christ. And secondly, he says, love. The evidence of being a believer, a born-again believer, is you love God, and therefore you love his people. Most of us who are grandparents, we understand, if somebody tells me they love me, but they hate my children, I know they don't love me. Right? And so God says, if you love me, you will love my children. If you hate my children, then don't say you love me because you don't. And so those those are two evidences. The third is obedience to the commandments of Christ. You remember in Matthew 28, we have the Great Commission where Jesus said to his disciples, go, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Therefore, this is what you're to do. Go and, and make disciples of all the nations. That was kind of a stunning thought, because here the Messiah of Israel is telling his disciples to go and make disciples of all the nations, all the people outside of Israel. Now, that included Israel, actually, and that's what happened first. They started making disciples of Jewish people who came to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. But then it began to extend out to all the Gentiles and ended up coming all the way to Nice in California. Isn't that amazing? Amazing. That God has called his disciples to go into the world and make disciples. And so when a person becomes a disciple, they begin to experience the transforming power of Jesus Christ. He transforms us. And if they're not experiencing it and they are truly born again, what happens is they experience a bunch of frustration. It's a really frustrating thing to know Jesus Christ and to continue to be just as I was before. And so we begin to have this profound desire to come to know Christ in such a way that he impacts our lives. You notice how it is in life that you get to know certain people and you start becoming like them? This is a great fear of parents when their kids start growing up and they get into their teenage years is we're so afraid they're going to be influenced by the wrong people, right? And then sometimes we find out, no, our children are the wrong people. <laughs> and that's really scary. But when we hang around somebody, they have impact on our lives. The reason we have small groups is we want you to be with believers, talking about the things of Christ, sharing the things of Christ, letting people see the truth about you as you walk with Christ, because we're all aware that we're all broken and that we are in the process of transformation. Because God has a plan to transform us, and that's what this passage is talking about. The word predestined, I want to give you the Greek word so you know what I'm talking about. The Greek word for uh, predestination is prahoridzo. That should look fairly familiar because horizo is the word from which we get our word horizon. And pra just means beforehand. And what he's saying is uh, prahoridzo means to mark out beforehand, mark out the boundaries beforehand. So if you're going to make a trip from California to New, to New York, you need to have, know where you're going, right? Now, what Jesus uh, basically says is, uh, and this is what God has agreed to do, is if you follow Jesus, you'll end up in the right place if you follow him. Some of you have never followed anybody because you have uh, GPSs. That's a new thing. But before there was GPS, you had to follow people to places. You know, you're in uh, in an unfamiliar district and they say, just follow me. We're going to go, we're going to go down this way and I'll make a couple turns. Just follow me. So you try desperately to keep their headlights within your vision, right? And you follow them. Well, Jesus is easy to follow because we have him coming to us continually from his word. So he tells us how to follow. Now we're always aware of the fact that we need supernatural help to follow him. Because when you read the Gospels and you see the way that Jesus treated people, you think, I could never treat people like that. Does anybody have Mark 10.45 as a memory verse? Mark 10.45? Okay, you should. Here's what it says. Jesus says, even the Son of Man, which is a title of dignity and authority that he has, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Now, here's the problem with following Jesus. He's always taking you down this path of servanthood. And most people, when they became Christians, they didn't sign up to be a servant. They signed up to get all the problems in their life solved, right? And if you go to some churches, you sign up in order to have wealth and health and all those kind of things. But if you follow Jesus, you're following a servant. Oh, he's king. He's the king of glory, but he's a servant. And when you watch the way you read the Gospels and see the way he treats people, you think, I don't know if I can do that. Well, you can't. That's the whole point. You actually need the Holy Spirit to empower you to follow Jesus. And so when you read some of those incidents in the Gospels where Jesus, the way he responds to people, down and out, broken people, and he shows love to them, you think, I don't think I could do that. Well, you can if you have the Holy Spirit, and this is why God has given every Christian the Holy Spirit, so that you can follow Christ. So, praharizo means to mark out the route, or route, if you prefer, to mark out the route before we before the trip begins. So, when did He do this? Well, according to Romans eight and Ephesians one, He did it before the foundation of the world. I mean, He plans ahead. He's God. And he has perfect knowledge and understanding. You know how surprised you are that you are what you are? If you, 25 years ago, you, you would have thought, I will never become what I am. You, you never thought you would be where you are and who you are at this point. But God knew. And he knows exactly how he's going to conform you into the image of his son. That's the good news. God has a plan, and he's going to conform you into the image of Christ. Uh, the implication is that the transformation process was planned by God before it began. Aren't you glad of that? I was just talking to a parent a while ago, and we were talking about how difficult it is raising kids because you realize you need to think about wh- where are they going to go in life? Not just let's get them through high school or get them through college, but where are they going to go in life? What are they going to be? Well, the wonderful thing is for the believer is that God has a destination for you. And that destination is to be conformed into the image of Christ. Not that you'll look like him, but that you'll have the same character. You'll be the kind of loving person he is. You will be a person characterized by faith and goodness and kindness and strength and conviction. See? So, this is what God is up to in our lives this whole transforming process. He's transforming us into the image of Christ. And he says there that so that he so that remember so that he would be, that is, Jesus Christ would be the firstborn among many brethren. Remember, Jesus became a person. Let me put get this back. Jesus became a human being. The eternal Son of God took on humanity and became one of us. He came all the way down into the pit where you were and I was, in order to bring us up into the family of God. Isn't that amazing? And so what God wants to do is to so transform your life that you would be like Jesus so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. Now, brethren is used there of all of us, men and women alike, all of us who follow Christ. He wants to transform us into the image of his son. And he's really good at it. That's what we're going to see in this text today. God is able to do what you can't do. Uh, being a parent can be the most frustrating thing in all the world, especially when you still are thinking, this was way back when you were thinking, I can, I can make my children what I want them to be. And then you discover that that's the most frustrating task in all the world. It's a task that only the living God can do. It's true, the Proverbs says, raise up a child in the way he should go, and when he's old, he won't depart from it. That does not say, God's going to leave it up to you to transform your child in the image of Christ. When they grow up, they'll be just like Jesus. No, they, they desperately need to be in this position of being transformed by the living and dwelling Christ. I, I think all of us are aware, if we've been under the teaching of the word for very long, we're aware that the Bible says when you became a Christian, you came to be in Christ. So that when God looks at you, he sees Christ. That's why he's declared you righteous, because you're in Christ. So being in Christ means I have a perfect standing before God. But there's another side of that story, and that is that not only are you in Christ, but Christ is in you. Christ came to live within you to transform you into the image of himself. Christ in you, the hope of glory, Paul said in Colossians, means that because Christ has come to live in us, he will change us. And he ain't leaving. He's not going to leave. Sometimes that's that's a a frustrating thing. He just won't leave. So he's going to continue to work in the heart and life of the believer in order to bring this transforming work that he has for us. Now I want you to turn to chapter 12 of 2 Corinthians. So let me read this testimony of Paul. Now you're aware that uh, Paul has been critiquing, criticizing, evaluating these false prophets, these super apostles who were telling the Corinthians that Paul wasn't the real thing, and they needed to turn from him to the teaching that they were giving him. So Paul is quite concerned. He doesn't want him turning from the true gospel to a false gospel. And so what they're telling him is, well, they have credentials, and they have experiences. They've had deep, profound spiritual experiences. They've seen visions. The book of Colossians, it says these, these are the people who go into great detail about visions they've seen. I've told you the story before. When I was in college, we—I have to say that every time I tell anything because I've said it so many times, but when I was in college, there was this guy, and we were having a conversation about— there was about six or seven of us guys, and we were talking about the Christian life, and then this guy starts telling us that Jesus appears in his bedroom often— at night and talks to him and these guys are all looking at each other like wow we got one now I said to him I finally said to him what does he say what has he said to you and he says "Well, I don't remember exactly (laughs) can you imagine but see that's what they had they had these guys who were telling them that they had seen visions and had these deep and profound experiences And so that the Corinthians should listen to them instead of Paul. And so the the Corinthians are asking, Paul, why don't you tell us what you've experienced? What are your credentials? Where is your letter? And you know what Paul says about the letter. He said, you are our letter. What did God do through us when we brought the gospel to you? But then notice this. In chapter 12, Paul gives in to their insistence that he tells them about experiences he's had and so this is what he says boasting is necessary that is because they are they are demanding it they want him to tell them about some glorious experience he had. he says boasting is necessary though it is not profitable but i will go on to visions and revelations of the lord and he begins to tell it he says i know a man in christ notice, now go notice something you remember grammar he's speaking in the third person Instead of saying, this happened to me, he says, I know a man, and this is what happened to him, because he can't stand to boast about himself. But we're going to see real quick that he's talking about himself, what happened to his life, in his life. He says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know, or out of the body I do not know, God knows. Such a man was caught up to the third heaven. Now, when he says 14 years ago, that means it was about in 42 A.D., we don't know what this situation is. First time he tells it, he hasn't told anybody until this moment. Well, in 42 AD, that may be, it is possible that he's talking about what he experienced at Lystra. He was stoned and they thought he was stoned to death. They, they thought he was dead. But then the, the, the other Christians went out and stood there by him and pretty soon he woke up and got up and everything was all right. So we don't know if he really died and then experienced this. He says, I don't know if he was in a body or not in a body. God knows. Because he's just telling them what he experienced. He says, I know how such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, God knows, was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words, which a man is not permitted to speak. Get this, he says, on behalf of such a man, I will boast. Now what he's getting at is, I'm not interested in telling you everything great about me. In fact, what he goes on to say is, I want to boast in my weakness. That's all I can boast in. Why is that? Because anything that is produced through you that is worthy of the glory of God is not produced by you, but by the living Christ who lives in you. Right? And so Paul says, uh, on behalf of such a man, I, I boast. But on my own behalf, I will not boast except in regard to my weaknesses. For if I do wish to boast, I will not be foolish, for I will be speaking the truth. But I refrain from this so that no one will credit me. I love this. No one will credit me with more than he sees in me or hears from me. What does he mean? Well, what's the effect of my ministry? That I don't want you to look at anything else. I don't want you to listen to anybody talk about how great I am or anything like that. I just want you to just believe I am who I am by what you see and what you hear. This is really interesting because when he wrote 1 Thessalonians, he says, you remember when I was with you? I was with you in your midst, and we didn't put on airs. We didn't act like we were something special. We simply brought you the gospel of Jesus Christ, and it was brought to you in the power of the Spirit, not in our power. Paul would say, I'm not powerful. I'm not a powerful preacher. I am a preacher of the gospel, and the gospel is Powerful. The Spirit is powerful, and he can touch the hearts of people. And sometimes we'll hear a testimony from somebody, a very plain, a timid person, and they tell us about what God has done in their lives, and it just slays us because we, we know that they've experienced the glorious power of the gospel in their life. And God has done something supernatural. And so he says, I don't, I don't want you to look on my strengths I don't want you to be enamored by the fact that I'm I'm some powerful, well-known, well-credentialed man. He didn't bring letters of recommendation. And by the way, he was recommended by the other apostles. They agreed he should go to the Gentiles and they would go to the Jews. He was loved by the other apostles. But Paul says, I don't want you to look on me and think of me as more than I really am. I want to boast in my weaknesses. Why would he boast in his weaknesses? The reason you boast in your weaknesses is because you know that it's only the power of God that could produce anything supernatural through you. You're the most unlikely person. This is how we all feel. I feel this way. You feel this way. It would be supernatural for God to do anything through me that produced divine effects. That's the only way it could possibly happen, is if God demonstrated his glorious power in a weak vessel. Remember, we are cracked pots. We have this treasure in clay vessels. And so it's not us. And so Paul says, I'm not going to boast of myself. I'll boast about this guy. Now, we find out real quickly he's talking about his own experience. But he's not going to boast about it. You see, Paul blew it because he could have wrote a book. You know, My 30 Minutes in Heaven... And he could have made it into a movie. And then he could have funded his whole ministry that way. But, and he probably would have, but they didn't have video back then. But then he says this. Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself. Isn't that amazing? He's, he's gone up into the third heaven. Let me explain to you. Paradise is actually a Greek word. Uh, In the Old Testament, what they talked about when a person died is they went to Abraham's bosom. Remember the story of Lazarus and the rich man? The rich man went into Hades. He went into a place of suffering. And Lazarus, who was a believer, he's in an Old Testament, Old Covenant context. And he goes and he's in the bosom of Abraham. And both places were described as being in the heart of the earth. Well, the bosom of Abraham was a place where Old Testament saints believed they would go and they would rest there until the day of resurrection. And when the day of resurrection happened, then they'd be raised from the dead in glorious bodies and be in the presence of God. But they would have to wait there until the time. But now what Paul experiences is not Abraham's bosom in the heart of the earth, but paradise in the third heaven. And if some people believe, and I believe this, that, par- that par- this paradise, what used to be Abraham's b- bosom, has been moved into the very presence of God. Because when Jesus went, when he was exalted at the right hand of God, he took captive a host of captives. So imagine, that. I believe he took all the Old Testament saints right into the presence of God. I was looking around to see who was here, because I know some people don't agree with this. So you can just chalk this up as my opinion. I think that's exactly what happened. I think all the saints from all the ages have been brought into the presence of God through the power of Jesus Christ. And so Paul is caught up into paradise, all the way up into the third heaven. Now, this idea of third heaven, maybe that's foreign to you, but Paul uses these expressions. There's a first heaven, second heaven, third heaven. Third heaven is where God dwells. The second heaven is a starry heaven, and the first heaven is the atmosphere around the earth. That was just that was just a common way of viewing the creation of God. The first heaven, the atmosphere, the second heaven, the starry heavens, and then the third heaven where God dwells. It's not so much a place necessarily. In other words, it's not like I wonder if it's some of those star, some of those formations. Is that where God lives right up there? I have no idea. I doubt if you could see it. But but Paul gets caught up into the third heaven, into paradise. You remember when Jesus was on the cross and one of the thieves who was dying there for his sins, his crime, and one of them was criticizing Jesus and taunting him, and the other one says, what's wrong with you? We're dying for, we're getting what we deserve. This man is not getting what he deserved. He's innocent and holy. And then he turns to Jesus and he says, Jesus, remember me. Remember me. And Jesus says to him, today, you will be with me in paradise. So paradise is the place where Jesus is now in the presence of God in the third heaven. It's this glorious place that Paul said he got caught up to, or at least this man he's describing, which is pretty apparent it was him. And so now he's he's telling them, because of this being caught up into the third heaven, this incredible experience... I've heard a lot of testimonies by people who had incredible experiences. And it's it's tough, isn't it, when somebody tells you something that's so dramatic and over the top and you're thinking, I don't really believe this, but I don't want to call this person a liar. Because we don't know, do we? Well, Paul was wise. He didn't tell anybody. 14 years, how long could you keep it quiet? 14 years he tells nobody, and then he, in response to their attacks on him, he said, all right, I'll tell you about a man who got caught up into paradise. And he saw things and heard things he can't even discuss. He kept it quiet. And so then, the Lord Jesus, who is the one who's living in him and transforming him, he now wants to help him to stay humble. I, I hate to tell you this, but God wants to produce humility in you. Because when you get wrapped up with Jesus, when you come to know Jesus, you're, getting, you're coming to know a person who didn't come to be served, but to serve. That's what humility is. Humility in the New Testament is referring to a, a state of mind, a way of thinking, and it refers to the fact that when you see yourself as a servant, when you see yourself as a servant, that's Humility. In other words, when I see myself as your servant, that I'm supposed to do this, bring the word to you as a servant, not as a ruler. Remember Paul said this several times in Corinthians, we've seen it, where he said, not that we want to lord it over your faith, we are co-workers for your joy. We're not trying to be high and mighty and rule down over you. We, want, we are one of you. And we want you to experience the joy of this relationship with Christ. This is this, this, the event of the, Paul's trip to paradise. <laughs> he got caught up into paradise, which I just read. I'm not going to read it again. And so we have this ex, ex, uh, described for us by Paul, what happened to him, how he went up into the third heaven and saw things he, sh, he shouldn't see. And then we have his thorn in the flesh. And notice this, if you can read it, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, that is what he saw and heard, he says, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh. We don't know what it is. There's a lot of guys who know what it is, but they all disagree with each other. So we don't really know what it is for sure. You know, pro- probably the best guess is maybe perhaps this thorn in the flesh is of some kind of physical ailment. ailment. Some people believe that. But it's also possible that what it is, is all this opposition that he has that's following him everywhere he goes. Everywhere Paul goes and preaches the gospel, opponents follow him and try to undermine his, his gospel. We don't know for sure, but he says, "I was given a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me." Wow, God allows Satan to torment Paul. Does that mean he might allow Satan to, a messenger of Satan to torment you? Yes, <laughs> He might. Uh, but he would only do it for this reason to help keep us from exalting ourselves because proud christians are worthless in the work of christ the only way god can use us if we is if we're humble if we see ourselves as servants of god and servants of his people this is a this is one of the most glorious titles of jesus christ in the book of isaiah he's the servant of the lord and he's called us to be servants of the lord and so he says, to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. Whatever this is, if it was a physical ailment or if it was opposition, whatever, he appeals to the Lord to remove it. You've done it, haven't you? You've prayed to the Lord to remove certain difficulties in your life, maybe a health problem, whatever. So three times, three seasons, he really sought the Lord to get freedom from this. I implored the Lord three. the Lord three times that it might leave me, and He says, He said to me, the Lord Jesus said to him. He's praying to the Lord. This is one of those occasions where you have a man praying to the Lord Jesus. It's okay. Now the pattern is in Scripture. We pray to the Father in the name of Jesus, but it's okay in a desperate situation. You ever been in one of those situations? I remember spinning around in circles on. Uh, the main thoroughfare in fresno one time with a carload of kids i was about 17 years old got the car got out of control we're just going around in circles and i'm praying oh jesus help us and i didn't it didn't even cross my mind that i should have said father uh, please uh, send the holy spirit to help us i just said jesus help us <laughs> because i thought i was going to total my car out i wasn't worried about the kids and he says, I pray that, he might, that it might leave me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. You get that? Power is perfected in weakness. So when you say, I am too weak, spiritually too weak to do anything significant for the Lord. Oh, no, you're in a perfect place because power is perfected in weakness. And when we come to understand that we are weak and we must trust Christ to accomplish anything in this work of discipleship, we're in the right place. We have the right attitude because Jesus says, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. And so Paul responds, most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses. That's your assignment this week, is to get comfortable with your weaknesses and do the work of Christ out of faith that he can use somebody as weak as you. So he says, I'm well content with my weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties. That may be a sign of what this thorn in the flesh was. We don't know. Possibly that's exactly what he's saying. It's these difficulties he goes through. In other words, don't you expect as a good American Christian, a consumer Christian, that things ought to go really smooth for you, right? Because you're a Christian. Christ is your savior. So things should go really smooth for you. I'm glad you don't think that. I'm looking at your that dumbfounded look on your faces. Of course not. God uses us when we're weak, and so we are going to suffer weaknesses. Things aren't always going to go perfect. We're going to have hard times, difficult times. But God knows what He's doing, and His power is the power of Christ is made perfect in weakness. So He says, I'll be content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. That's only true of servants of Christ when you're serving Christ. I told you last week I'd read something the week before about from these some a group of people being persecuted and they said, tell our brothers and sisters in America not to pray for our safety. Pray for fruitfulness. We're suffering and we're going to suffer. It's a part of being a Christian. That's what most of the Christians in the rest of the world believe. They believe, they actually have this conviction, that part of being a Christian is you're going to suffer persecution. It doesn't sound like the Christianity uh, I signed up for. That's a kind in the word of God, isn't it? Now his thorn, why'd God give him a thorn, he says, to prevent spiritual pride. Is spiritual pride really a danger? Oh, you better believe it. All you got to do is go online. You want to Google something? Go online and Google some doctrinal issue somewhere. You will find out that Christians are some of the proudest people in the world. Because I can, you know, we used to, we used to. When I was in college, I went to a little college for my first two years. It was a Christian college, and uh, it was called West Coast Bible College. We would have to go out and do fundraisers, go door to door, and sell candy. And so we would knock on the door and say, hi, we're from West Coast Bible College and we're doing a fundraiser and so forth. And they would say, well, why are you in Barber College? Uh, and it was really demeaning because here we thought this was great uh, integrity. We were in Bible College and they think we're in Barber College. Uh, Barber College might have been more helpful at that stage in my life. Actually, um, I'd had a trade. But anyway, uh, God gives him this thorn Because the Lord Jesus Christ knows that in order for you to serve him, you must recognize your weakness and his strength. That make sense? You know, maybe there's somebody in your life right now that you would love to be a witness to, but you're scared to death that if you were to open your mouth, they would think you a fool. And so you're afraid to even, you even to, you know, broach the subject To tell them what Christ has done in your life. What a difference it's made in your life. Who Christ is. How you receive Christ. How you walk with Christ. And so we get afraid and thinking, I'll wait till I'm strong. Oh no, if you ever get strong, you'll never do it. You got to do it when you're weak. And we're all going to be there until we die. (laughs) Until we enter into the presence of God. We're going to be weak, but that's what God uses. He uses weak people. He uses people who have the treasure of the gospel in clay vessels. So I just want to encourage you that uh, what God has called you to do and to be, he wants you to be transformed. And you have to, the only way you can be transformed is by fellowship with Jesus. You have to be following Jesus. It doesn't mean that you can see him you know, just around the corner, and so you keep walking trying to find him, it means that you live your life in fellowship with him. That's why we have small groups, so you can be engaged in disciple-making. If I said, we want everybody to sign up to make disciples, and you would probably think, oh, they're going to give me some person I'll have to meet with and go through a Bible study with. No, that's not how we do it. The way the disciples are made primarily in the New Testament is in a small community of believers who share their lives with each other, And as God is opening your eyes to truth and causing that truth to change you inside, and you can share that with others along with your weaknesses, along with being honest about, would you please pray for me? I have a a terrible habit of failing to do this or failing to do that. Would you pray for me? That makes you most useful when you're honest and transparent and truly Spending time in the Word of God and holding and asking people to hold you accountable. Would you please hold me accountable? Would you ask me from time to time, "How are your times with the Lord?" I, I'd be glad for you to ask me that. How are your times with the Lord? Is the Word is has the Word come alive to you this week? Has God spoken to your heart this week? See, that's what will bring transformation. Now, that's the end of my sermon, I see. (laughs) Uh, I just want to encourage all of you to get into a small group and do it because you want to be a part of making disciples for Jesus Christ, and you will be being discipled yourself as you help others to pour into the lives of other people. That's what God has called us to, and we want everyone to be engaged in that. Okay? Do you believe that he has predestined you to being conformed to the image of Christ? I knew you all believed in predestination <laughs> if, if you just understood what it meant. It doesn't mean, that's what it means. It means you are, God has decided how he's going to conform you into the image of Christ. It's a wonderful thing. He has a plan for you, and he's working his plan. Let me pray. Father, we bow before you now. In humility, we recognize our smallness and our weakness, our inability to do the work of God apart from the Spirit simply using us as instruments in your hands. But we long, Father, to be instruments in your hands. We long for you to use us and all that we are, all that we have. We pray, Father, that you would stoop to use us. We thank you for this truth that you can use weak people to accomplish great and glorious things if we'll just put ourselves at your disposal. So we pray that we would. Give us a heart, we pray, for making disciples and for being a growing disciple that can help others. We pray that you would cause us as a local church to be primarily, that this would be our top priority. We want to see disciples made. We want to be growing as disciples. We want to be used by you. And we ask you this in Jesus' name. Amen. A barber College might have been more helpful at that stage in my life. Actually, um, I'd have had a trade. But anyway, uh, God gives him this thorn because the Lord Jesus Christ knows that in order for you to serve him, you must recognize your weakness and his strength. That make sense? You know, maybe there's somebody in your life right now that you would love to be a witness to, but you're scared to death that if you were to open your mouth, they would think you a fool. And so you're afraid to even, even to, you know, broach the subject to tell them what Christ has done in your life, what a difference it's made in your life, who Christ is, how you receive Christ, how you walk with Christ. And so, We get afraid and thinking, I'll wait till I'm strong. Oh, no, if you ever get strong, you'll never do it. You've got to do it when you're weak. And we're all going to be there until we die, (laughs) until we enter into the presence of God. We're going to be weak, but that's what God uses. He uses weak people. He uses people who have the treasure of the gospel in clay vessels. So I just want to encourage you that... Uh, What God has called you to do and to be, he wants you to be transformed. And you have to, the only way you can be transformed is by fellowship with Jesus. You have to be following Jesus. It doesn't mean that you can see him, you know, just around the corner. And so you keep walking, trying to find him. It means that you live your life in fellowship with him. That's why we have small groups. So you can be engaged in disciple making. If I said we want everybody to sign up to make disciples and you would probably think, oh, they're going to give me some person I'll have to meet with and go through a Bible study with. No, that's not how we do it. The way the disciples are made primarily in the New Testament is in a small community of believers who share their lives with each other. And as God is opening your eyes to truth and causing that truth to change you inside and you can share that with others along with your weaknesses Along with being honest about would you please pray for me? I have a a terrible habit of failing to do this or failing to do that. Would you pray for me? That makes you most useful when you're honest and transparent and truly spending time in the Word of God and holding and asking people to hold you accountable. Would you please hold me accountable? Would you ask me from time to time? How are your times with the Lord? I, I'd be glad for you to ask me that. How are your times with the Lord? Is the word is has the word come alive to you this week? Has God spoken to your heart this week? See, that's what will bring transformation. Now, that's the end of my sermon. I see. <laughs> uh, I just want to encourage all of you to get into a small group. And do it because you want to be a part of making disciples for Jesus Christ. And you will be being discipled yourself as you help others to pour into the lives of other people. That's what God has called us to. And we want everyone to be engaged in that. Okay? Do you believe that he has predestined you to being conformed to the image of Christ? I knew you all believed in predestination. If if you just understood what it meant, it doesn't mean, that's what it means. It means you are, God has decided how he's going to conform you into the image of Christ. It's a wonderful thing. He has a plan for you, and he's working his plan. Let me pray. Father, we bow before you now. In humility, we recognize our smallness and our weakness our inability to do the work of God apart from the Spirit simply using us as instruments in your hands. But we long, Father, to be instruments in your hands. We long for you to use us and all that we are, all that we have. We pray, Father, that you would stoop to use us. We thank you for this truth, that you can use weak people to accomplish great and glorious things if we'll just put ourselves at your disposal. So we pray that we would. Give us a heart, we pray, for making disciples and for being a growing disciple that can help others. We pray that you would cause us as a local church to be primarily, that this would be our top priority. We want to see disciples made. We want to be growing as disciples. We want to be used by you. And we ask you this in Jesus' name. Amen